Tommy, are you drunk? Do you feel tipsy? Oh yeah, I'm fucked up. I'm fucked up. Okay, ready? Okay. Our first podcast should be something that is fucking horrendous. And I came across it immediately. I went on Google and I typed in gruesome murders. And this is the first case that popped up. <laughs> okay. But, 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 but I had never heard of it before. And I definitely should have because it's so fucked up. I've literally never heard it. But it's the first Google shirts. Yes. 1986. Ina, Illinois. Little, like, buggy cars and shit, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, it's, it's a really, no? No, they're bigger. Oh. They're pretty big cars, but okay. Alright. Big ass cars. It's a super small town, less than 3,000 people. Russell and Darby Deaton were a happily married couple. They um, both went by their middle names. They're Elaine and Keith. So that's what we're going to call them. Because that's how people knew them. Um, they had a three-year-old son, little Peter. Elaine was also seven months pregnant with their first daughter. And they were going to name her Casey. Do you notice how I keep saying, like, past tense? Yeah. It's because it's bad. <laughs> okay. It's... I just want you to be... Spoiler alert. I just want you to be mentally prepared, okay? Um, they were there because Keith had just finished his training, and he was going into, um, a treatment plant. He was going to be one of the operators, so he bought a house, or he bought a trailer, and then he put it on some property that he was renting on the outskirts of Ina. It's in a really woodsy area. It's by Route 37. Um, so just picture, like... No neighbors from miles. Just a, a whole trailer sitting on a bunch of land by the woods. Okay, get it oh, in your head. Okay. I know, that sounds so nice, Loki, but maybe not after this. So in their free time, the couple played in the musical ensemble at their local church. But they did want to move because there have been 15 murders in that small town of less than 3,000 people in the last two years. So, not just Keith, that everybody was stressing out about it, but especially Keith, because he's like, I've got a wife, I've got a little toddler, and I've got a, a whole other little baby coming in. Like, we have to get out of here. That's really noticeable. Yeah. So, his mom, Miss Joanne, we love Joanne, she later says when she talks about them that um, he was really stressed out about finding a new safe place for them. She even goes to mention this account where there is this young girl, like, in her early 20s who was lost and needed to use the phone. She goes and knocks on his door, and he peeks his head through, and he's like, have you heard that there's been 15 homicides in the last two years? I'm not taking any chances. And he he tells her her to fuck off, basically. All my time listening of true, true crime, that sounds suspicious to me. He puts a for sale sign up in his in front of their house. Um, it's kind of important. Just remember it later when we get into, like, the heavier shit. On the evening of November 18th in 1987, Keith's parents made uh, contact with the Jefferson County Sheriff's Office because he didn't show up for work that day. Even his job called him numerous times. He didn't answer. And finally, they called his his parents. Everyone was in agreement that this was unlike him and something tragic, suspicious was definitely going on. So the Jefferson police came out to do a wellness check. Upon entering their mobile home, police noticed no forced entry. Nothing was missing. The cash and jewelry were all laying out in the open. So then they make their way into one of the bedrooms and they find three bodies laying next to each other, tucked into into the waterbed. The first body uh, had been Elaine. She had been bound, gagged, and duct taped. Her breasts were mutilated, and uh, she had appeared to have been beaten to death. Her autopsy report said that she suffered a blow to the right top of her head, and she fractured her skull. Next to her, they found three-year-old Peter. He was also beaten to death. His autopsy showed numerous abrasions and contusions, and his skull was also fractured. Elaine was beaten so bad that it caused her to go into labor. You know, she was seven months pregnant. So she gets beaten so bad that she goes into labor and delivers the baby. 
after she delivers the baby, he continues to beat her until she dies, and then after she's dead, he he rapes her corpse. He takes he takes the murder weapon and he beats the baby to death. The murder weapon they found was a baseball bat that Keith had gave Peter for his third birthday earlier that year. They found it sticking out of um, Elaine's vagina. What they didn't find was Keith. So they sent out a bunch of uh, search parties to go look for him. They were thinking that he had run away because his car was missing too. He had a red 1981 Plymouth that was missing from the scene along with himself. So the police were like, obviously he murdered his family and he's on the lam. They form all of these teams and they go to search for him. Well, they found him, but not the police. It was. It was a bunch of hunters. Oh, so he's dead? He's dead. They found his body in a wheat field a mile away from his family's house. Never thought it was him. I always thought mm-hmm. it was him. He had three gunshot wounds in the face. And his. Ready? Yeah. His penis was severed. Which sound, also sounds like a revenge murder. Right, you would think the police are saying that it has to be somebody who knew them. Like, it's it's not random. They said this is too ridiculous for this to be this random. It's too violent. The three family members were found a day after they're murdered. Which means Keith was found two days after after the murder. Um, and that same day that they found Keith, they found his car. But they found his car... It was parked outside a police station uh, Benton, Illinois. It's 11 miles away from from where his mobile home was. And inside of the, the trailer of his car, they found a bunch of blood splatter um, indicating that, that that was where he had been murdered. Of course, there's a lot of pressure from the police. Less than 3,000 people. Small town. This is a ridiculously gruesome murder. Like, Everyone was stressing before with the 15. They just added four to this. Everyone is everyone is losing their minds right now. So police are are doing their best. They're trying to find some answers, give some peace to the people. They interviewed more than 100 people, and they tracked down more than a thousand leads. Um, they had 150. Um, pieces of evidence that they had labeled. Many have been sent to labs for a tons of testing. Um, all of the DNA samples were only from um, the victims, uh, the the Darden family, and none from none from um, any of the suspects. So unfortunately, that wasn't going to help them out. But uh, because this was so messed up and there was like some sexual mutilation slash rape they assumed that it was a cult going on like a multiple people like a whole cult trying to make deals with the devil and stuff however when the jefferson police included cult experts they detected that since there were no signs or symbols related to rituals found in the area that it most likely was not a cult. So that was ruled out almost immediately. The investigators did not believe that they were randomly chosen, as we were talking about before. Um, they really they knew off the bat that it was a deliberate, personal, super personal thing, like how you were thinking. So they're looking at everything. Like, they're, they're trying to find any clue, any idea, like, who could have hurt these people, who would want them to suffer, to die. They could not find anything. They looked for affairs um, in both Keith and Elaine. They couldn't find any. They couldn't find any debt troubles. Um, They did find a stack of papers with a bunch of sports scores in the house when they were investigating it. So they were thinking that maybe he had some gambling debts. I don't know. Is the mafia in Illinois? I'm pretty sure they're everywhere. Oh, that's one of their sayings, huh? I, I don't know. I think so. When you're hearing a family. No, that's... That's not... That's not them. Okay. Well, anyway. Talking to his mom, Miss Joanne. Remember, Miss Joanne? She was telling them that Keith was super frugal. They were already starting a college fund for three-year-old Peter, and he was collecting money by reselling 50-cent cans. Like, 
super humble. Like, he was not about debt. He was trying to get as much money as he could. Gambling was not, gambling was not something that he was into. Um, also inside Keith's trailer, they found a small amount of marijuana, but they never found any conclusive evidence, um, detecting that he was a drug dealer. It's, like, out of the ordinary, and it was, like, such a super small amount. It doesn't mean anything. Police were just basically pulling at strings at this point, because they really had nothing. And this case ends up going cold for years. Even though Joanne tried really hard like not to let the case go. She gathered more than 3,000 signatures in an attempt to go on the Oprah Winfrey show, but the producers turned it down because it was a really brutal, graphic, like ridiculous crime. And they were like, it's daytime television and stay-at-home moms and little children watch us. So, no. So unfortunately, the case goes cold for years. And then, one day, a man by the name of Tommy Lynn Sells confesses to not only the Darden murder, but up to 70, I think, he claims to have murdered. He confessed to all of these crimes while he was uh, in jail for um, a murder, for a separate murder that we're going to get into later. So the rest of this is just us talking about Tommy. Oh, so he's actually the murderer? Yes. Spoiler alert, Tommy's a murderer. Tommy Lynn Sells. That's a tongue twister. Say that ten times fast. I can't. So Tommy, he's a cancer, so you know what that means. I I don't know, I don't do those. Me neither. I don't know. I was hoping. I was hoping for something. He gave himself the nickname of the Coast to Coast Killer, and I just feel like Okay, I thought this sounded so so familiar. Coast to coast, yeah. yeah. And everybody doesn't call him by that because no, that's he, what, he yeah. gave himself that nickname. Yeah, because he wanted that nickname. Automatically, yeah. you don't deserve it. If you have to give yourself, that makes me sad. Poor okay. dude. I knew this sounded familiar. Poor little man. So the coast to coast killer. <laughs> he was born in Oakland, California, on June twenty eighth, nineteen sixty four. He was born to his mom and dad, obviously, William and Nina Sells. I typed in William's name on Google, and nothing really popped up, but I don't think his dad really plays a picture in anything. He mentions his mom more than he mentions his dad. So daddy issues. Listen, man after my... Oh, no, I'm not supposed to side with him. Or actually, you know what? Baby Tom, baby Tom deserves better. And we can feel bad for baby Tom. Adult Tom can eat a dick. Adult Tom can choke. But baby Tom, we feel bad for baby Tom. Those are some aggressive words, but okay. (laughs) What? No, you're going to be like, you should have called him worse when I get into it. So, he had four siblings, and one of them was a twin, and her name was Tammy. Tammy and Tommy Jean. Aw, that's so cute. I think that's adorable. But, not for long. Was it adorable? Because when they were 18 months, they both got meningitis. Tommy survived, but um, Tammy Tammy did not, unfortunately. So I'm sure that kind of messed them up. You know, have you ever talked to twins and they say they have this weird, like, telepathy? Like a twin bond is, like, stronger and more, it's more, like, magical? Or more, you know, it's like you're basically the same person. So it's like when they pass, every person that I've, every twin that I've talked to, when they talk about their twin, they're like, that's my other person. And if something was to happen to them, then I could not be a complete person. Did you um, look up how old he was when he got meningitis? 18 months old. They were babies. Oh, so. But still, like they shared all that time in the womb. He technically knew her longer than anybody else in the world knew her. I don't think that they would have any memory. I guess we'll never know. So, around the age of five, um, Sells was sent to live with his aunt Bonnie Walpole in Holcomb, Missouri. We like Bonnie. Bonnie's a queen. Bonnie's the only stable anything he's had in his entire life. His aunt was going to adopt him, and when Nina, his mom, found out, she took him back. According to Sells, 
he says that um, after he goes back to his mom, he starts spending a lot of time with this man named Willis Clark who began to molest him with the consent of his mother. So this is what sells this thing and you need to know early on to take whatever he says with a grain of salt because lying is like his third favorite activity. It's like murder, rape, and lying. Those are his three favorite things to do. But I will say when you look up Willis Clark in related relation to this case, it does show that he is a, a pedophile. So that most likely did happen. So, and he later says while he's confessing that when he's committing these crimes, he has flashbacks to to those moments and that's what he's thinking about when he's killing. Like he he's picturing killing killing Willis. By the age of seven, he was a full-blown alcoholic, like, like full-blown, like smash on the playground. All he drank all the time, constantly. And by the time that he was ten, he thought he started skipping school regularly to go smoke weed. At the age of thirteen, he climbed into his grandma's bed. Um, he he tried to he tried to rape his grandma. So, when he comes around, you don't hide your your wife. You, you hide, hide your, your grandma. grandma. You hide your own grandma. Poor thing. I I couldn't find what specifically happened, but everything that I read about it, it all says allegedly, or not allegedly. It all says attempted. So for whatever reason, he was unsuccessful. Thankfully, but after that, he was like, "Yeah, I did that," and then I woke up, and my whole family was gone, and they left me by myself. And it's like, well, yeah, you can't, ra- you can't, you can't rape your grandma, you know? <laughs> okay. <laughs> you can't. So Tommy said. Can't leave that in. <laughs> I know. I know. Um. So sales pitch. <laughs> so. He was abandoned, so he was like, all right, fuck it, I guess I'm on my own. So that's when he started hitchhiking, and I think that's why he coined the, the, the term coast to coast. Because he basically turned, became a carny. A lot of his victims, I, I, there's only 22 confirmed, even though he, had, he claims to have killed 70, but a good chunk of them he met at a carnival. So, he started hitchhiking um, from 1978 to 1999, committing various murders and other crimes that don't sound as bad because of the murder, but um, he did, like, steal some cars and stuff. And while he was traveling, in between these years, he did have um, a couple of jobs, like side hustles, nothing really too big. He worked at some barber shops. Um, carnivals, like I said, but other than that, he pretty much just fucked around, got in trouble, stole, raped, murdered, hopped trains, and uh, lived his life. In May of 1981, he briefly reunited with his family. He found them in Little Rock. Oh, wow. In Arkansas, I know. It's fitting. And I don't, I, I, I can say it because I'm from Arkansas, so I can make the incest jokes. But um, it fits because once he found them, he tried to rape his mom. Everything I read said attempted. He didn't actually do it, which was good. But he was only 17 when this happened. And um, obviously they were like, you can't, you have to leave. So he left. The first crime that he committed was when he was 15 years old. He broke into this man's house, John Cade Sr., a 39-year-old, and he claimed that while he was going through his stuff and stealing, he happened to see the man performing fellatio on a boy who couldn't have been older than 7 or 8. Tommy says that after he saw that, he just got so enraged and started having these flashbacks to his childhood, and he killed the man uh, in a fit of rage in July of 1979. What's fellatio? Um, oral sex. Yeah, I know. So sad. Like, it, it's fucked up, but then when he told the police that they went to investigate, and there was never any evidence of a boy or anyone around town who would have fit that description. Like, they tried to find truth to it, 
But I mean, honestly, even if you think about it, what are the chances the exact moment that he was breaking into this house, he caught him doing like something way worse than than breaking into a house? house. Yeah, I think. And he he says this again in other cases. Like, it just seems like he lies to come up with a like a reason like a justification as to why he did it yeah so after his first murder he was like i killed that guy and i was like wow this is my new favorite thing i love this and i'm gonna do this often and that he did um so the next killing that they had confirmed is in 1982 also in little rock the victim was hal atkins he was shot but he did survive that was really the only information that I could find about it. Some of these cases, I have a lot more information than others, but I do have at least a gist of the 22. So after Hal Atkins in 1982, Joanne Tate was murdered in her St. Louis home. Her daughter's testimony as a seven-year-old, she was also sexually assaulted in the attack, but he didn't kill her. She first... She identified this man named Rodney Lincoln as the killer. And so he was in jail for years for the murder. And then Tommy Lincells appeared on an episode of America's Most Wanted in 2018. And the daughter saw the episode and was like, oh my god, actually, I think I put the wrong guy in jail. So she calls the police and tells them her thoughts. And then Sells ends up confessing and matching details to the description of the crime so he ends up you know taking the blame for that so rodney lincoln uh was acquitted after all those years he finally got out of prison which was good so then we fast forward a year later to july 31st 1983 in st louis missouri colin and tiffany gill they were both they were beaten to death um, Colleen was 33 and Tiffany was her four-year-old daughter. He tends to kill mothers and also the children, which I think has something to do with his with his past. You know, I think he's just reliving his his shitty childhood. So then in July of 1985, 21-year-old Sells worked at Forsyth, Missouri uh, at a carnival where he met 28-year-old Ina Court and her four-year-old son, Rory Court. So, Sel says that Ina invited him into her home that evening. According to Sel's, they had sex, fell asleep, and then when he woke up, he saw her going through his stuff trying to steal. Once again, he was just so mad and couldn't control his anger that without any hesitation or thought behind it, he grabs her son's baseball bat and beats her to death. And that's taking this with the grain of salt that she was stealing from mm-hmm. him. And then he murdered her son with the same bat, which is kind of, it's the same, like he likes bats and it's really fucked me up that it's like the kid's bat. Yeah, that's like, pretty brutal. And it's almost like he knows it. Like, he's doing it on purpose, and that's the... Um, but, but he said that he had to murder the son. He really didn't want to, but he just could not have any witnesses. Had to. He had to. He didn't have a choice, babe. You don't understand. And their bodies were found three days later. Um, but by that time, Cells was out of there. Yeah, long gone. Long gone. So, May 1st, 1987, in Lockport, New York, Suzanne Court's who was 27 her body was found on september 5th in 1995 that same year cells drugged a stephanie strofe with lsd before fatally strangling her he encased her feet in concrete and dumped her in a desert hot spring her body has never been found that's um that's different like for him to go from beating to like concrete and drowning, that seems like a that seems like extra. It seems like um, experimenting. I, it seems like you can't use the oh I was so mad that I poured concrete and then I I killed her and I left her there and then I like waited a little bit and then I put her feet in and let it dry and then I, and I was angry that entire twenty four hours or however long that takes to happen. And then the murder after that was the Darden murder. The Darden's family murder. So, yeah. At that, this point, it does kind of seem like he's just experimenting and seeing, like, what, what works best for him. So, when Keith confessed to the Darden family murders, that was in 2010. 
and the murders itself happened in 1987. So it, it had been decades. And when he's telling his confession, um, his accounts of what happened, he tells his stories are off. For example, one time he says that he met Keith at a local pool hall, and then sometimes his story will change and say that it was at a truck stop near Mount Vernon. But either way, he met him in one of those really sketchy places, and and they just got really chummy, and then Keith invited Sells over to his mobile home for dinner. Do they ever find anything that can tie him, actually, with to him? What, to meeting him... Or ever even, uh, them ever even crossing paths? Um, no. No, but later on he says that, he says that he left a bunch of, he saw them out, or he saw that their mobile home was for sale, and so he, he like targeted them for that reason. So the police were correct in that it was targeted, but it wasn't necessarily personal, he didn't know them it just seemed like a good a good opportunity, yeah. So with his accounting said he met him at a pool hall or a truck stop. Keith asked him if he wants to come over for dinner. Tommy's like, Yeah, sure, that sounds that sounds fun. So they're having dinner and Tommy was like, I was just planning on doing that. He seemed cool. I just wanted a free meal and I was gonna go home. Tommy says that he wasn't he wasn't planning on committing any crimes that night or doing any ill will towards him or his family, but he says, so I was getting ready to go, and then as I was leaving, Keith propositioned him and asked him if he wanted to have a threesome. And Tommy said that this infuriated him once again, and he started having those childhood flashbacks, and it made him so mad that he forced Keith he forced Keith at gunpoint to drive to where his body would eventually be found. He killed him, mutilated him, um, you know, cut off his penis, and then returned to the trailer to kill Elaine and Peter because he said that they were witnesses, that they had saw his face, and they knew that he was the last person who was with Keith. He denies that Keith asked him to have a threesome in general. He said, I, I only said that so I would throw you guys off of the case. But it's like, they didn't suspect you of this. You yourself brought it up. Yeah. He put himself into you it. You brought yourself into it. You, you, it would have it been unsolved. It's like, why are you fucking with... So, in this version, he says that he got off a freight train right next to Ina... And he saw that the trailer had a for sale sign. And he was like, they want to sell their house. I have a way to get in. It's really desolate. No one's around. I feel like killing. Like, I can... This is this would be the, the perfect opportunity for me. So he knocks on the door and he says Keith opens it. And he starts asking him questions about the trailer. And then once he was let inside, he overpowered Keith. He made him bind and gag his wife and son with duct tape and force him to drive his car to the nearby field at gunpoint. Tommy said that he sliced Keith's penis off, telling him that he was going to take it back to Elaine before he shot and killed him. And then, I'm glad that he that he didn't. He left it there, but why, why would you tell him that he was going to take it there? A romantic gesture? I guess. Oh, I guess Picasso. Mm hmm And Ian a dick. What's the difference? Didn't Picasso end up... Killing himself? I thought he also chopped his wing off. Oh, did he? I, I don't, don't know, know, but also... That might have been a joke. People are saying that he didn't kill himself. I think I want to talk about that in the future, because there's a lot of conspiracies, and there's, like, some, some evidence behind most of it or at least like a a good a good truth of it like it was some kids it was some kids or something okay so um at the trailer he raped Elaine and then beat Peter and Elaine and the newborn baby to death 
After cleaning up, he drove Keith's car to Benton. And when the police pressed him for details that weren't made public, but Sells couldn't answer the questions that weren't in the papers. And sometimes he would, sometimes he wouldn't. Like, there would be times where he would say the wrong answer and then shout out the correct one after. So the police were basically, they were confused. Like, they were convinced that he, the police were torn. Half of them weren't convinced that he knew enough for them to be sure that he was the one who murdered them, but the other half was saying that he knew enough and, to his credit, did answer some of the questions correctly. And, I mean, he's claiming he's killed over 70 people. Yeah, that's a lot to remember. That's a lot. And there was a confirmed 22. That's also a lot. So, it's not surprising... That some details... Yeah, that he's forgotten some stuff. I mean, after the third time, it's like, it, it's all the same. All marriages. Allegedly. I, mean, I don't know if three is the official number before it starts getting easy. Oh, I know. Okay. I just want everyone to know that that was not me confessing <laughs> to anything. The police were torn. They didn't know if they believed him or not, and Tommy was like, I'll prove it to you. Take me out of this prison, because he was... He was in a Texas prison for a murder when he was committing, when he was confessing to, to all of these crimes. He was like, take me to, take me back to Illinois. I can show you the, I can show you where I was, where I was hiding, what I did, how everything was. Just like, take me back to the crime scene. And the Illinois police really wanted to, but Texas... But under Texas law, and because he was in Texas under Texas jurisdiction, you're not allowed to take a criminal on death row out of the prison. So they can't do, like, walk-arounds. They can't go to crime scenes to... Like, they're not allowed. But you can't in Illinois, and Illinois was like, okay, well, since technically the murders were here, that's in our jurisdiction, and we allow it, so can we take him out? Texas was like, no, fuck off. And Illinois was like, okay, sorry. So so while he was in uh, Texas, the police did confirm that he was responsible for 22 murders. But they thought that he was confessing to all these extra ones because he was trying to intimidate, he was trying to imitate another infamous Texas serial killer, Henry Lee Lucas. Henry Lee Lucas, he was trying to avoid the death penalty. He was also uh, being faced with that charge. So he tried to avoid it by confessing the crimes that he had not committed and taking advantage of the judicial system's gratitude. So basically, he's like, his his theory was, if I keep confessing to these murders... They'll have to keep on investigating. Right, so I have to, they'll have to keep me alive. So he's basically trying to prolong... Yeah. And Texas was not having it. Some of the reasons that the police were feeling the way they were about whether or not he committed this specific crime was when they asked Tommy what seat he had killed Keith in, he answered incorrectly. Well, based off of the evidence, what he where he said he shot him, it, it didn't line up with the evidence. And then they asked him, well, how was Elaine's body positioned? And at first he answered incorrectly, and then they were like, okay, you don't know what you're talking about. So they get up to leave the interrogation room, and then he blurts out the correct answer. So, who knows? But he did talk about going to Ina, to Ina and he described where he was waiting for them in the woods, and that they could find a bunch of beer cans and, and all this, and that was going to be his proof and evidence that um, that he was the one who committed the murders. Oh, and they ended up finding those later on? You want to know something? I don't know. They, what, they never bring it up? I They didn't bring it up. They didn't bring it I couldn't find anything about it, so I'm assuming they didn't bring it up. But in the end, when he... Like, when he... When he does get put on death row... It is not because of the Darden family. They say that it's like they feel like they got justice for it, but he wasn't officially convicted of it. Uh. Yeah. So it's like, yes, unofficially. Yes. Remember the first thing he was saying about, oh, Tommy invited me over to his house? Mm-hmm. It's kind of 
inaccurate because remember how I told you that his mom was talking about how he wouldn't even let this like young 20 something year old girl into his house to use his phone right and then he's like no let me ask this stranger who I met at the two most shadiest places you can meet someone at and invite him into my home where there's been most likely a crazy homicidal serial killer around who wasn't even Tommy by the way still don't know know who killed those 15 people it just doesn't add up it doesn't seem from what everybody says it doesn't match Keith's character and I think that's why he changed his story later on to or he decided to start telling the truth about waiting for him in the woods personally that's that seems like the most accurate story the fact that he was saying that Keith made homosexual advances like anyone who knew Keith was like he was not homophobic but he definitely was very heterosexual and and that wouldn't even that didn't even sound it didn't even sound like going back to his other murders September 11th in 1988 Salem New Hampshire he murdered Melissa Trimbley she was 11 um, he raped and stabbed her and then he threw her body on two train tracks and a train had run her over post-mortem they found her body the next morning December 18th, 1988, Tucson, Arizona. He stabbed uh, Kent Lawton at the age of 51. Her body was found two days later. Moving on to 1990, stole a tr- he stole a truck in Wyoming and was sentenced to uh, 16 months in prison. While he was in prison, he went under psychiatric... Like, they wanted to see what was wrong with him. Mm-hmm. He was diagnosed with antisocial personality disorder, borderline personality disorder, schizoid personality disorder, se- severe substance abuse disorder with opiates and opiates, amphetamines and alcohol dependence. He was also bipolar and had major depressive disorder and was under like active psychosis. What was that sentence again? I just messed with you. Please don't make me. <laughs> December 9th, 1991, in Mariana, Florida, Teresa and Tiffany Hall were both blundered to death with a wooden leg table. Teresa Hall was 25, and Tiffany Hall was her five-year-old daughter. May 13th, 1992, a 19-year-old woman named Fabian Witherspoon in Charleston, West Virginia. Um, she was driving under an overpass when she saw Sells panhandling. Tommy was panhandling. He um, had a sign saying that he would work for food. And she was... She's so sweet. She felt bad for him. So she let him into her car and took him to her house. And she was like, wait outside, I'm going to get you some food. So she goes inside and she gets some food for him and by the time she gets out of the front door he was already like she was coming out of the front door and he was standing in the in the threshold and she was like that's not what I asked you to do but okay whatever and then she's like actually I forgot something so she goes back into the kitchen and he follows behind her and grabs a knife he chases her into the bathroom and traps her in there and then he rapes her repeatedly so I know so, um, Fabian is a bad bitch, and bad bitches don't die. She fought back aggressively, and she hit him in the head with a big ceramic duck. How was that so hard to say? I don't know. But it made Tommy so mad that he found a piano stool and beat her with it, and beat her with it, and then he stabbed her 18 times with that knife. But, like I said, she survived, and she reported him to the police. He was indicted on five counts of rape and felony assault in September 1992, but he took a plea deal and pleaded guilty to malicious wounding, and on June 25, 1993, he was sentenced to from two to ten years of imprisonment, and the rape charges were dropped. He went in in, what I say, 1993, and he was released in 1997, and this is when the killing really, like, he starts getting really... Like, you thought this was bad. It starts getting ridiculous. And I think it's because, also in one of his interviews, he was talking about how it's like a drug. You know how he was addicted to all these drugs? He compared it to heroin. He was like, you know, you do one, and then it feels good, and you want to feel like that again, so you do another, and then you do another, and it 
it becomes boring. So then you have to do more in order to fill the original high, and then you're basically chasing this high. And I also think that's why his murders started getting more, like, intense. Because he's like, alright, I've done normal murders, now let me try rape murders, now let me try mutilation murders. Oh, like all experimental? Yeah, yeah, but you can see it progressively gets worse. Before daybreak on October 13th, 1997, 10-year-old Joel Kirkpatrick was murdered in the Lawrence and was murdered in his Lawrenceville, Illinois home. With he was with his mother Julia Ray, who was a PhD student at the time at Indiana at Indiana University. This one this one was really fucked up. Remember how I was telling you that the things that I were reading about it, some of the stuff that he did, they would just gloss over. Mm-hmm. But it was like that's that sucks. That's crazy. Like you have to explain. You have to just the fact that they they mention it and move on. But it's like what you once you read into it, it's a whole separate story in itself. So this happened. He kills her son. Basically, this Tommy comes in and kills Julie's son. Julie sees him right after the murder. He's trying to leave, and she catches him in the hallway. So he beats her, doesn't kill her, but he beats her and leaves. So she calls the police, and she gives him a full description, a detailed, like, crazy detailed description of what he looks like, what he did, what what happened. Did she stop him in the hallway because she knew what he... Like hallway, like a house or apartment? It was a house. Oh. It doesn't specify. The way that he, the way that Tommy tells it and the way that it is presented in, um, and all the articles that I read, he was leaving and she, like, caught him while he was leaving. And he, she was like, hello, who are you and what are you doing in my house? And so, um, she tells the police... She gives a very detailed description of the intruder and who, like who broke into her that he broke into her home that he killed her that he killed her son and that he attempted to kill her. But the investigators were less concerned with uh, Tommy and more concerned with Julie, and she was indicted three years later for the murder. Oh, I remember hearing about this. Yeah, during her trial, the prosecutors presented several pieces of gender-biased, emotional, prejudice, and irrelevant evidence, including testimonies by her ex-husband. Her ex-husband got on the stand and was like, oh yeah, she wanted to abort him when he w- when she was pregnant. And then her, like, first of all, that's irrelevant. It doesn't matter. She didn't go through with it. That doesn't mean she wanted to murder her son ten years later. You know? Right. But not only that, like, her ex-husband was lying. That wasn't even true. So then, um, Julie's people had to get her OB- OBGYN on the stand, and the OBGYN had to tell the court and the judge that she had, to, that she begged to be put on, um, bed rest, and, like, did get put on bed rest towards the end of her pregnancy because she was so scared that she was going to have a spontaneous abortion. So even if she, at the beginning, was contemplating getting an abortion, by the end, she was taking extra steps to make sure... That she was going to have the baby. He was going to be fine, exactly. So, and this is, I just, the judicial system is so fucked. It's all so fucked. Like, even after he admits to this, she still, she, like, remains in prison. They, They don't get her out. And then when they do get her out, it's not because he confessed. It's because they found a technicality during her, um... During her original case. So it ended up getting dropped. Made it look better on the the system side. I guess, but just the fact that a whole conf- a whole confession with the same accounts, the same details that she gave about the guy. The guy, like, that she gave about Tommy. Tommy is giving about the events and himself. And they're like, mm. Too much paperwork. Technicality, that's a technicality. No. I know, and... That is if that is what she ends up getting out from is a technicality, but not specifically, but not the not his confession, which is what I'm saying is fucked up. But um, the 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 jury found her guilty though, and they had sentenced her to sixty five years in prison. Did she get any money out of it? I don't know. I couldn't find anything, but she's she was in law school, and now she, I'm pretty sure she like continued on to be a lawyer. So 
I would have to think. Okay. She was like, I'm going to see you myself. Yeah, she was like, pro bono for me. <laughs> like, and also, he did the confession in 2004. So, while he, so from when he was arrested for the murder that we're about to get into, was confessing, like, throughout the years. So, like, in 2010, he confessed to the Darden family. 2004, he confessed to this one. Mm-hmm. And he had confessed that he had broken into what what he thought was Julie's home, which it was. And he took a knife from her butcher block in the kitchen and stabbed the little boy to death and scuffled with the woman. Basically, the same thing that she told the police happened. Oh, and also just Julie's people, when they were, um, when they were defending her, they were talking about her, about her wounds. And they were like... The way that they are. It's impossible it's, for for yeah. them to be self. She could not have... They could not have been self-inflicted. So even just, like, even with evidence like that, compared to, like, oh, her ex-husband said that she she thought about killing her baby when she was pregnant. And they were like, oh, jail. Then you killed him, jail. The jury hates a bad mother. So in the transcripts about this confession, Tommy admits that he was on drugs and he has all these jumbled memories and has already killed so many people at this time that he's having like a hard, he can only remember so much about this specific incident. All he remembers is he had a minor altercation with a woman and her son at a convenience store. Oh yeah, so that's what happened. They were like, was it random? Like why did you pick her? I have, I copied and pasted I got, like, the full transcript. The interviewer says, um, he was basically asking him about this murder, and he says, okay, so you originally saw Julie at the grocery store, and Tommy says, I was coming out the door, and she was going in the door, and I kind of bumped into, we kind of bumped into each other, and I was like, excuse me, and she was like, excuse the hell out of you. <laughs> I yeah, know. she deserved to die. <laughs> she said it. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> he said she's a fucking. So she's yeah. She's like yeah. She was being a fucking bitch. And he's like, and I said, excuse me. I was trying to be nice. And he said, uh, he was like, I was in no mood. I was in no mood to hear all that. It just really ticked me off. Oh, damn. So the nice people are uh, the serial killers in the world. I tell you what, Tom. Um, and then the interviewer was like, Well, do you know how bad you hurt her? Talking about when he had assaulted her. And Tommy said, not bad. And then the viewer's like, not bad? Because he stabbed her. <laughs> like, you remember? He stabbed her a couple times. And he's like, no, I didn't. I didn't put a bullet in her ass like I should have. So he's being nice. He says, because I did not kill her, I did not treat her badly. Okay, I see that serial killer logic there. I guess. <laughs> What's it called? Not psychopaths, but what was his diagnostics again? Which one? There is a little... It's not sociopath. So then the interviewer asked, um, were you there to kill her originally? And if so, why did... Like, but he, he was saying, like, you were there to kill her originally, so why didn't you kill her? Why did you kill her son? And, um... Oh, I didn't even realize we are still talking about this case. Yeah, same guy. So he stabbed her son, and then Julie came out, and he stabbed her, or fought with her, stabbed her, and left. Jesus, her son died because her mom said... Because her mom said, excuse the hell out of you. I know. That reminds me of... It's the same reason why I'm afraid to honk at people, because I feel like they're going to roll down their window and try to shoot me in the face. He said, you were there to kill her originally. Why didn't you? And Tommy says, well, sometimes, man, that's a hard question to answer to. Uh, sometimes getting a loved one is as bad, if not harder on, on the person that you're pissed at. And the interviewer was like, so, so you couldn't kill her, so you killed her son, basically. And he's like, no, you don't understand what I'm saying. I purposely killed her son because I know that that would, that that would be like, that would hurt her more than killing her. Like, trying to make it sound like, oh, I'm this mastermind. Like, I'm so evil. I, I purposely killed her son so that she would be more in pain than just killing her. I mean, it does sound kind of evil, evil mastermind. It does sound fucked up, but then the interviewer was like, okay, well, in your original confession, you admitted that you thought you were killing Tammy. And then you were like, <laughs> actually, you looked down and you were like, oh, you know what? This does not seem like a woman. 
And then it wasn't until you were confronted with Julie that you were like, oh, that you realized you had killed her son and not her. And he was like, oh, did I say that? I don't know. I say a lot of stuff. And the guy was like, okay, Tom, we're, we're going to move on. Yeah, the mentality of this guy. <laughs> no. So he was basically asking him questions like, do you remember how you did it? Do you remember what was going on? And he's like, I've killed up so many people, I honestly can't tell you. All, all I know is... I, I went into her house. I, I waited, like, I, I followed her home. I waited outside until it was dark. I went in to what I thought was her room. All the house, ha- the interviewer was like, how did you know where the bedrooms were? And he was like, I, I rob and murder in a million houses. They all have the same layout. Beds on one end, bathrooms on the other end. You're gonna run into. To yeah, usually that's the case too, which is scary. Yeah, so that's why our house is customs come at us. No, I'm just kidding. No, it's not. It's <laughs> like, oh, that's cool. <laughs> our, ours is laid out like everybody else's in this neighborhood. Oh, oh, well, yeah. Why? Why would we be special? Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, that just kind of shows Tommy's set of thinking like he forgets he lies so much that he forgets his own lies October 15th 1997 Springfield Missouri he abducted drugged raped and strangled Stephanie Mahani who was 13 years old her body wasn't found until the following month on November 18th and then the rest of these murders um they happened in 1999 yep you were born and then several people were murdered as a result. How do you feel about that? I mean, it's a sacrifice. You sleep good? Yeah. Good, good. I'm glad one of us does. So April 4th, 1999, in Gibson, Tennessee, Deborah Harris and Ambria um, Halliburton. Deborah was 13. She was, or no, sorry. Wow, am I dyslexic? 31. Deborah was 31. She was raped, stabbed, um, and he had left the knife in her chest post-mortem. Which kind of reminds me of what he did to Elaine with the baseball bat sticking out of her vagina. Like, just leaving leaving murder weapons inside of... And killing mothers and their children and baseball bats all seem to be consistent <laughs> things. <laughs> I'm trying really hard to, like... Those consistent things are it's getting a little bit wider though it sounds like I know I'm doing my best I'm just trying to make it make sense I would I would say more more so Emma would be just the mother and son isn't it a lot yeah, well yeah mother mother and kid because yeah. there's a lot of little girls there's a lot of little girls too um so Ambria Halliburton was eight and it just it says incidental. But she was stabbed three times. On accident? I, I believe it. You stabbed me how many times oh on accident? Oh my god, I stabbed you once. It was an accident. I didn't know it was scissors. <laughs> I... I, <laughs> I just you got, you got, Explain yourself on how you can stab somebody. <laughs> and just so you know... <laughs> <laughs> Move on. <laughs> I only stabbed you because... <laughs> you don't even remember why you stabbed me. I remember you were attacked. <laughs> yes. If anything, I was, like, tickling. No. And then okay. you were like... <laughs> okay, I don't like being tickled. And you know I don't like being tickled. Alright. Well, maybe this dude was getting tickled by this. <laughs> <laughs> That's not funny. I'm so tired. April 18th. In San Antonio, Texas, Mary Perez. Oh, and I think this case, um, Mary Perez, I think this is an extra murder that they did convict him on. So I I believe that they were convicted on um, the Harris murder, which we're about to talk about like in a few seconds, and also this murder with Mary. Um, she was nine years old. He abducted her, raped her, and strangled her with her own t-shirt. And they found her body ten days later in Texas. Oh, yeah, Texas. So that would make sense, too, because they were both in Texas. So he was pro- it would probably have been easy for him to get convicted on that one as well. 
May 13th in Lexington, Kentucky, Haley McComb, 13 years old, he abducted, raped, and also strangled with her t-shirt. Then he covered her body with debris post-mortem, and her body was also found 10 days later. July 5th in Kingfisher, Oklahoma, Bobby Lynn Warford was 14. Tommy forced him to perform oral sex on him, and then he sodomized and shot him in the back of the head. Oh, sorry, that's a woman. Her name's Bobby, I just assumed. Man, but, duh, it's been women. That was a woman. He's only, he's only raped women. Okay. I didn't mean to sound, like, excited about that. I just, <laughs> I realized my mistake and I wanted to fix it. No judgment here. Okay, so Bobby was a 14-year-old girl. And then he took two of her earrings and, um, like, as a trophy. Mm-hmm. And they found her remains on November 4th. And he murdered her on July 5th. And then December 31st, Del Rio, Texas, Kayleen Harris and Crystal Searles. This was his final killing. This is the murder that he goes, that he gets uh, sentenced to death on. So we don't know if this is his final. It is his final. It is his final. Final one that we know about. No, he goes to jail very quickly after this. So he could have killed two more people right afterwards. Actually, he may or may not have killed someone while he was in jail. That was one of the ones that he claimed. Oops. That was one of the ones that he claimed to kill, but they um, they didn't count it because they couldn't find any true evidence for it. Which you would think that would be the easiest one to find evidence about what, in because jail? it's in a yeah. Like what happened to you? Like oh, a bunch of criminals. So there's a lot of actually a lot I don't of know. Point, fingers you, to point. You're probably right. I don't know how jail works. So um, Keith met the Harrises at a church. He befriended them, well, really the father, Terry, but Keith and his wife at the time were really close with um, Terry and his wife. You know, Tommy, I don't know if you've caught this, but he's like a really shitty person, so you shouldn't be surprised that his marriage was not doing well. I thought it was doing great. You would you would think. Most serial killers, their relationships is... <laughs> Most serial killers do have good relationships. Like, John Wayne Gacy, his wife, when she found out that he killed people, she, she was like, what? No way. What? For real? Oh, actually, no, I take that back. She did. They, they did not have a good relationship. I don't know what I'm talking about. It was bad. Because he kept, like, he wanted to fuck dudes, and she wasn't. And then he was like, on their anniversary, he went to have he went and took her out and had sex with her and was like, "That's the last time we're having sex." So I hope you love it. Oh, I thought she said at first she thought he was a gentleman. Or is that a different serial killer? That's all since serial killers, babe. That's how they work. Wow. So Keith was over at their house a lot and usually by himself because he would he would confi- he would confide in Terry about his relationship with his wife and asked for advice and stuff so they were really close like they were close in the church and they were close outside of the church so his the the harris family knew the cells family everyone like loved each other supposedly you know they they knew each other very well and so one night keith shows up to the harris house um late at night after coming home from the bar terry the dad was out of town and that that was part of the reason that Keith went over there because he knew Terry was going to be out of the house and he thought that everyone would be more vulnerable. You know, that's that's a common thing. The father is seems to be the person that would be the most like the biggest the biggest threat to you. Right. So you eliminate them first or make sure they're not around. So I think that's why he waited. So plotted and then waited for Terry to leave. He showed up to their house one night late after the bar and he climbs in he climbs into one of the bedrooms through the window. Like he opens the window screen and climbs through. I imagine that's how you normally do it. Mm-hmm. You know, that's how you go through a window. <laughs> yeah. Even though Terry was gone, he was the only person who left. Everybody else was there. The residence was occupied by five people. In one bedroom was Harris's wife. She was asleep with um, one of their young daughters. 
and the other bedroom was the Harris's son, one of the the a young son. He was a small son. He was a, <laughs> he was a small kid. And in the other bedroom, there were bunk beds, and they were occupied by 13-year-old Kayleen Harris and their family friend, 11-year-old Crystal Surleys. That's the bedroom window that he crawled through. So, he, he, he gets inside, he sees the girls sleeping, and then Tommy lays down next to Katie and he nudges her. She wakes up and looks at him, and she's like, she's asleep, she's dead sleep, and he wakes her up out of a dead sleep, and she's like, what are you doing? Like, she's super confused. What's going on? It's too early in the morning. What are you doing in my room? Then he put his hand over her mouth and and he pulls out a 12-inch boning knife that he brought with him. 